Spoke Media. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Last summer, I went out to L.A. and I spent a few days with this writer and storyteller whose work I have admired for years. His name is David Crabb. And when I got to his apartment, he told me this story from a couple years ago when he was feeling really depressed. A family member named Charlie had died. And this happened right at the time that David and his husband had to move out of their house They didn't have very much notice about having to move, didn't even really have time to look for a new place. So they were temporarily staying at this friend's studio apartment in East Hollywood while she was out of town. It was a small apartment, but it had this big picture window, which meant that she had a perfect view of the building across the street, which happened to be the Church of Scientology. I could just, like, lean in a window in my very depressed state and watch the Scientologist in and out of the big blue building for hours on end. And it was really like watching an ant farm of human beings. That's David. And at the time this was happening, David's husband, Jack, was working a day job, which meant David spent hours on end alone in this studio apartment. And he told me that he would just stare out this window. And it was so bizarre watching them. They were like extras in a movie with no lead. You know what I mean? Like Tom Cruise was not coming to set that day. They were just trapped. And the crazy thing about it is that from my perspective, I would look at them and be like, oh, that must be nice. Oh, I would watch them and think, oh, this is how people join cults. Like from this place of I have nothing, you know? At the end of the day, David's husband, Jack, would come home from work. He would be like, how was your day? And I would express to him all of my Scientology observations. I was at this point um, smoking and eating a fair amount of weed, so sometimes I could go on in a very long-winded way that would become very emotional, punctuated by tears. And he was like, babe, I think that you need to go talk to someone. So David called this service that recommends various options for people looking for support in times of grief. And they told him about this support group that met in Venice, which was a short drive from where they were staying. So a few days later, David drove out to this nondescript house in a quiet suburban neighborhood full of sunlight and palm trees. A middle-aged woman greeted him and invited him in. She served him carrots and Chips Ahoy cookies on a paper plate. Everything seemed pretty normal. Until David met the group's facilitator. She had blown out red hair, kind of like an amethysty necklace, was in like sort of gauzy, diaphanous clothes. As the meeting got underway, David started glancing around the room at his surroundings. It wasn't just the four of us. There were also many other beings in the room. Um, Do you know those sort of collapsible play pins that you could put babies in at parties that you kind of, there were four or five of those and they were full of no less than a total of 15 under two pound elderly chihuahuas four or five of which were wearing dresses. The meeting started, and as the other people were sharing their stories, David was starting to have second thoughts about being there. But then, finally, the woman with the amethyst necklace turned to him and said, All right, David, why don't you tell us about what you've been going through? And boy, did I. I felt like my skull kind of cracked in half and just lava poured out. I got so emotional and intense that at one point I looked down and there was a little dog in my lap. I hadn't put it there. Like, I didn't start my 
weeping with the dog in my lap. I guess one of the women was like, he's really losing it. Let's put a little dog. And it was this tiny little chihuahua with big milk eyes and this purple, like little lavender, like tutu dress thing. And I just remember looking down at it like I was coming at back from the blackout and the dog looking up at me as if to be like, this is fucked up, isn't it? Isn't it weird here? And when I was done, the woman who ran the group, she's like, you know, you keep talking about how it's just a dog. Don't do that to yourself. Let yourself mourn the dog. Don't try to like line that loss up against other kinds of more worthy losses, right? Okay, friends. So I buried the lead here a little bit. That family member of David's who died, Charlie. Charlie was David's dog. But I didn't want to tell you that right away because the thing is, when David was telling me this story, I knew that Charlie was a dog. But I kept forgetting. Because the way David talks about dogs is unlike the way I've ever heard anyone else talk about them. And in the moment of telling his story that day at the house in Venice, David had this feeling. Maybe this group really understood him. So, you know, I'm kind of like coming back to the room holding this little dog, when I know, I hear one of the women refer to the dog as her daughter, and I tell her, I say, oh, that's, that's so funny that you call your dog your daughter. Finally, it seemed, David had found a group of people who got it. For David, Charlie was family. But then... She says, oh, no, 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 I mean, I mean, she, she was my daughter, like 200 years ago. She was my human daughter. And I'm like, whoa, okay. And then, it, and then as I'm still processing that a few minutes later, one of them starts talking about, well, you know, I mean, the, the visitations are the thing that really keep me going. And I'm like, what, what, what are the visitations? And she's like, oh, yeah, you're talking about how she comes through your washer and dryer. And then another woman's like, yeah, well, for me, it's the lights. When the lights go on and off in the, in the hallway. And then they're all sort of talking about, like, the dogs, the, the, the souls of their dogs are essentially like alive in the like electronic components of their houses. And I just kind of shut down for the next hour of the meeting because I didn't know how to talk to them about losing Charlie in their language. When David got back to his friend's studio apartment that night, Jack was out and David was exhausted. He was feeling more helpless than ever. And I lay down in bed to go to sleep and I was probably in bed for like 10 minutes when all of a sudden the white noise machine by her bed just went and came on. And I sat up in bed and I said, I said, Charlie, like I said it to the room. And I'm like, I am like sitting here thinking that like the ghost of my dog is alive in this like strange woman's like white noise machine. And like, that can't be true. David actually ended up telling me the stories of three different dogs that have been huge parts of his life. And over the course of the 19 previous episodes of this show, from cults to corpses to Chinese food, I have heard plenty of stories about the conscious and unconscious ways our families define us. But I had never heard one quite like David's. From Spoke Media and WALT. You're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is episode 20, A Boy in a Story. We'll be right back.
David was born in San Antonio, Texas. And by the time he was two, his parents were divorced. So David spent most of his time with his mom, Jerry. And Jerry worked at the mall, where she had three jobs. At one point, she worked in an arcade and a maternity store and the rape crisis center, which was also in the mall because of Texas. Other than the mall, David and Jerry were kind of the only reliable presence in each other's lives. Jerry was barely making enough money to keep them afloat, and she had a string of bad boyfriends. So she and David moved around a lot. I counted it once. I lived in, I think it's 19 places. But finally, when David was in eighth grade, it seemed like they'd landed somewhere permanent. Jerry started dating this guy named Mike. And Mike had a, a, a two-bedroom house with a yard. And he was this really cool guy with, like, a, a goatee and, like, long hair. He looked like he was a member of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Like, he just, yeah, and he smoked weed like a member of Creedence Clearwater Revival, too. Um, and I remember my mom once over dinner, I was like, what's that smell? And my mother was like, waterbed demoisturizer. And I was like, what? Now, this was actually a plausible explanation. Mike did, in fact, have a king-size waterbed. And Mike seemed excited to bring David and Jerry into his world. He even bought David his own twin-size waterbed. But even better, Mike had two dogs, a pair of German shepherds named Brandy and Ginger. Brandy and Ginger were sisters. And while Ginger spent most of her time sitting patiently at the feet of whoever seemed most likely to give her table scraps at dinner, Brandy had a little bit darker energy. She was kind of mysterious, and she wore a muzzle. And it was weird being a kid in this new environment, kind of getting used to the prospect of this new, like, you know, dad figure, possibly maybe soon-to-be stepfather if they got married. And having this sort of whole process watched by this dog with a muzzle. Like sitting, having dinner, being having someone explain to me about the waterbed demoisturizer, kind of like laughing, being like, my family, and, you know, Ginger sitting next to me, letting me pet her as I eat a steak. And then in the corner, like, like literally like behind a drape, blowing in a breeze and some like terrible like canine, like fatal attraction kind of moment. Just this muzzled dog, like glaring at me. But a few months after Jerry and David moved in, Mike decided it was safe to take Brandy's muzzle off. Still... David couldn't shake the feeling that Brandy was watching him, particularly late at night after Mike and his mom went to bed. I would stay up and watch, like, Cinemax, especially I was at that age where, like, after 11 it became Skinemax, you know what I mean? One night, David was up late watching Skinemax, and he went into the kitchen to get a glass of water. But before he could make it to the sink, out of nowhere, Brandy appeared. She walked right up to me, and she opened her jowls, and she bit the inside of my thigh. I mean, it hurt, don't get me wrong, but there was no, she didn't even puncture my jeans. And I just started saying, Mike, 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 and the door opened, and he came in, and he clapped, and he was like, Brandy, and he yelled at her. Brandy retreated into the corner, and the next few nights, things went back to normal, or at least as normal as they could be for David, who still felt like Brandy was eyeing him from behind the drapes. About a week later, David was up late watching TV again, and again, he dared to venture into the kitchen. And when he got there, Brandy was waiting. She strips her teeth and starts growling at me, and I'm sort of like frozen, like, you know, just like there with like an empty glass, all I wanted was water, being like, oh my God, I'm gonna die right now. And I start saying, Mike, Mike, Mike. Mike walks up behind Brandy, and he's facing me. And he looks at me and says, David, don't move. 
I remember my first thought was like, me? Like, me not move, like, your dog's about to murder me. And he very, like, slowly points, and right in front of my feet is this black scorpion. A big, one of these big, like, Texan Southern, like, they come out in the heat, like, oily black, like, you know, like, two and, you know, a substantial size. And, you know, he proceeded to, you know, walk around Brandy and smash it and throw it out. And the minute that he, like, came around the dog and smashed it, she just, like, relaxed. This incident completely upended David's feelings about Brandy. Maybe she didn't hate him. Maybe she was just trying to let him know there was a scorpion in the house. That night, I, I went to bed, and I got in my twin water bed, and at one point I was laying there, and I felt like this like wave under me. You know, the, the, the weight of someone getting in your water bed. I was like, what? And Brandy got up on the waterbed and laid at the foot of the waterbed. And she proceeded to sleep in my waterbed every night after that. About nine months into Jerry's relationship with Mike, things started to unravel. Mike's interest, I think, uh, went beyond weed into other things. And, and one night I, I heard them in their room really, really fighting. And it was intense. And it was, it was you know, it wasn't like physically violent, but it was, it was heated. And I just sat in my room, you know, with both of the dogs. Like, they went to be with me. And, you know, at that point... I had done this thing where, like, I had kind of built, like, my dream teenage room in my awesome, like, nuclear family house. My whole room was, like, you know, all the greats of the era, Taylor Dane, your Rick Astley, your Nana Cherry, your Paul Abdul, all of it. And I just remember sitting in my room, like, my perfect room with my dogs, like, hearing them fight and being like, you know, I remember even at that age being like, I'm going to lose this. And it was a few nights after that fight where my mom woke me up one night. And she whispered, she's like, we have to go. And I was like, what's happening? And she's like, we just, we we need to go. David remembers packing frantically, literally throwing clothes and books into garbage bags. I remember I packed up all my stuff and we, I look back at my room, you know, that I had like built over nine months and it was, you know, this place I really loved. And we walked to the carport to get in the car. And when we opened the door, we looked, and my mom had opened the doors to the Chevette because we'd been putting stuff in it. And in the passenger and the driver's seat were Brandy and Ginger, and they were just staring at us. And at this point, I was crying, and my mom was crying. And I don't know if you've ever tried to tell a very intuitive, smart animal like a dog that everything is okay in a playful way as you're weeping to get them out of a car, but they did not want to get out of the car. And they were, you know, I mean, they were sensing us. They're dogs, you know, and they were, they didn't want to get out of the car. And it took a really long time to also keep this quiet, you know, to quietly in the driveway, the carport. And we finally got them out of the um, car and, you know, we got in the Chevette and, you know, we, we put them in the house and we drove away. I was like, this is, I'm not, I'm not, I'm probably not going to see these dogs again. He was right. But eventually, Charlie came along. He has one big black eyebrow over one of his eyes, like half Martin Scorsese face, kind of. And he walks up to us and he's just looking like so inquisitively, like, who are you guys? Like, I heard about you. That's coming up after the break, when our story continues.
Spoke Media. In his 20s, David got, as he puts it, the hell out of Texas and moved to New York. He was living in Brooklyn, working at a gallery, bartending, and spending his free nights exploring the nightlife. I was sort of like the guy that you would see at, like, the, the Electro Clash Williamsburg, like, gay club. Like, and I would be doing the thing that all the guys did. You would wear your bomber jacket, and you'd lean on something, and you'd kind of sneer with a cocktail and a cigarette. As much fun as he was having, though, David still felt a little lost. I was kind of like all talk and no walk. I was deeply insecure about intimacy and really inexperienced. I mean, I was still kind of the same, like, goth kid I was when I was little. One night, David was sneering at a bar in his bomber jacket, and this really good-looking guy walked in. This, like, very sort of, I mean, corn-fed-looking, tall, very handsome with this baby face and, like, prematurely salt-and-pepper hair. And his name was Jack. Things got off to a bumpy start. Jack and I's dating was, like, me getting hammered, like, liquid courage, liquid courage, liquid courage, and then getting home to, like, the pull-out sofa where that he shared in this, like, crappy Bushwick apartment with his roommate and, like, passing out. Eventually, they got fed up with each other and called it quits. And it might have ended there. But about a year later, David was living in the East Village, and by this time, David had discovered he had Crohn's disease. So he was trying to take care of himself a little better, work out more, drink less. But the drinking part was a little tricky. And one night, he bumped into Jack in a bar. Cut to two hours later, liquid courage, smashed, sucking the life force from each other's faces in the patio of this bar. But this time, things went differently. He was like, I'm not gonna do this with you again, I will meet you for a day date. I was like, I was drunk, I was like, a day date. He's like, yeah, we're gonna go on a day date. They agreed on the following Tuesday afternoon. And when they showed up at the restaurant, they were a little awkward and formal with each other. This was the first time they'd hung out sober. On top of that, the vibe at the restaurant was a little weird. There were pink construction paper cutouts and decorations all over the place. And as the waitress walks up, she has like a stack. She just gotten menus from the printer and they're all shades of pink and red. And she looks at us and she cocks her head to the side the way that straight girls do when they see gay guys they think are a cute couple. And she proceeds to say, happy Valentine's Day, you guys. And we had no, we had not nary uh, 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 an idea that it was Valentine's Day. Soon enough, David and Jack were living together back in Brooklyn. And for the first time since Mike's house, David felt like he'd finally found a real home. Almost. There was one ingredient missing. And so one day, David and Jack went to this local animal rescue called Brooklyn Badass. They had seen this orange dog on the Brooklyn Badass website, and they thought he looked like the perfect addition to their little family. But when David and Jack showed up at Brooklyn Badass, things didn't go the way they planned. You know, I love dogs. This dog was an asshole. Like, I don't know how else to. He was not vibing with us. And as we were petting him, like, not vibing with us suddenly morphed into, like, aggression. He, he started growling and that, like, rumble way in his chest. He stripped his teeth, and I kind of backed up. And I realized he wasn't looking at us. He was actually looking past us. And Jack and I turned and kind of walking up to us, not on a leash, just seemingly like free reign in the place, was this like little white uh, dog. He's maybe like 11, 12 pounds. 
and he's hobbling because he's not using one of his hind legs. Um, his entire butt is shaved. It's like just like pink with like a big Frankenstein scar down it. And the scar is above like the side of his pelvis where he's not using his hind leg. And he's kind of like hopping over. He has one big black eyebrow over one of his eyes, like half Martin Scorsese face kind of. And he walks up to us and he's just looking like so inquisitively like, who are you guys? Like I heard about you. And as he's doing this, this, this child thing is just like, literally like stripping its teeth. And this little dog just kind of looks at the dog like, ugh, I didn't know you'd be here. Anyways, guys, what's going on? Like this little dog does not give a rat's ass. And Jack always talks about how I looked up at him as if to say, well, this is it. Well, this, we're done. We're done here. We've found the dog. Everything about this little dog was perfect, except for the name. And when we went up to meet the, the, the people that ran the rescue, we were like, well, we, we think this is the dog we want. They were like, Big Daddy? Y'all want Big Daddy? And, and later that, I was like, Jack, we're gonna change this dog thing. So we named him Charlie. Right away, David felt this kinship with Charlie. When they got Charlie, David was pretty sick with Crohn's. He was having these intense bouts of abdominal pain and roving arthritis. Sometimes he felt like he could barely get out of bed. But once Charlie was in the picture, that all started to change. I loved walking places with Charlie. Like he was just, he had a lot of spunk. Um, within the first week or two we had him, he started using that hind leg. You know, I really did feel sometimes like I'd be out with him and I just had an extra kick in my step, you know? And I don't think that dogs are magical in the sense that you get one and they heal you, but the timing was kind of amazing. I started to gain weight and get better from my Crohn's flare-up just as, you know, Charlie started to grow hair over that pink patch and use his hind leg. One day a few months in, David took Charlie for a walk around Brooklyn. It was the first warm afternoon of the spring. The sun was out and people were finally venturing out of their apartments for the first time in months. And at one point, they were walking past a Thai restaurant, and there was this somber-looking guy in a gold chain, kind of brooding in the shade, wearing a big pair of headphones. As David and Charlie passed him, the guy took off his headphones and started staring at them. David wasn't sure what he wanted. And he looks at me, and then he looks at Charlie, and it's kind of like his whole is sort of like persona changed, and he lit up, and he put his hand down, and he, and he pet Charlie, and he said, oh, this dog, this is the dog of a boy from a story. Now, something you need to understand about David is he's an artist. He's constantly engaged in this ongoing process of self-analysis, finding new ways of telling and retelling his own story, both to himself and to the world. In 2015, David published a memoir of his days as a gay goth kid in suburban Texas, dropping acid and running naked through cemeteries. It's a really good book. But now that David had Charlie, he was beginning to realize how much dogs were the key to telling the truest version of his story, both figuratively and in Charlie's case, literally. Charlie literally wrote Bad Kid, my first memoir, with me. And he, he likes stillness and rest. So when I would write... You know, as playful as he was when I write, he was like, he knew, he was like, oh, we're going to write. And he would lay on the couch next to me, um, sort of on his side with his spine, like, against my, my thigh. David and Charlie spent hours in what David started to call writing position. With the return of his health and the arrival of Charlie in their lives, David and Jack decided to make another big change. They got married, 
and they packed up their life in New York and moved west, trading in their cramped Brooklyn attic apartment for this sun-drenched house in L.A., complete with a fig tree growing in the yard and a baby grand piano for Jack to play. The three of us had this sort of beautiful, special thing that was kind of like this crazy Eden. I mean, we picked figs, there was a barbecue, there was like a, a vegetable garden. I would go and cut um, salad and like from the garden, you know, as like Charlie, like just like laid in a corner. It was, it was, it was beautiful. And there was more good news. Jack's sister and her five-year-old son, Leo, announced that they too would be moving to LA from Pennsylvania. Which was really exciting. The idea that we were gonna have like family here. One morning, not long after they arrived in Eden, a glass broke in the kitchen. And we're cleaning up glass when this email comes in, and it turns out that our landlords are selling this house that we'd only lived in for three or four months, and we're being evicted. And as this is happening, I hear a little yelp in the living room, and I look, and Charlie is on his back, and he's just in a full locked seizure, like foam, just foam pouring out of his mouth. The seizures started to recur. And before long, David had lost track of how many times he had to drive Charlie back and forth to the vet. Some of the times, Charlie would go to the hospital and he would just be there for a while. They'd be like, we need him overnight. And then the next morning, they'd be like, something's wrong. We need him another night. And then they'd be like, he should probably stay here for four or five days. And, you know, as all of this is happening, you, you are confronted with just the, the heartbreak of it because... A dog doesn't know, no, no, what's happening to them. They can't, I want to believe they can't like fear for their mortality that way, but you can't help but think of their suffering. And like, you know, for a human, you get to tell a human, all of these tests are really going to hurt. You're going to throw up for two months because of this drug, but don't you want to paint again? <laughs> like, you know, don't you want to see your child go to college? And you know, what would you tell a dog? Within a few weeks, David was so distraught he couldn't write. With Jack out of the house during the day, David spent all of his time alone, worrying that whatever was going on with Charlie was about to get worse. I can't express to you the amount of time and, and days. This, it felt endless. Having all of these people that you're paying money say, it could be this or this or this and we don't know. And we'll know next week and then next week we'll come and we don't know. But there's now this additional symptom. There's more seizures. Um, he seems to not have a sense of smell. He seemed to be temporarily blind for a minute. There were all of these issues. It was being in such a high state of anxiety that like I, I would have moments where I would lose track of what I was anxious about. Finally, the phone rang one day. And Charlie's doctor told David they'd figured out what the problem was, but it wasn't good news. Charlie had a brain tumor, and he needed to be admitted to the hospital long-term for an intense round of radiation. David started spending most of his nights at the hospital with Charlie. All the people at the animal center, they knew me. Um, they would make it like date night. Like they all loved Charlie. There was this one woman who really loved Charlie. She was so sweet, and one time she came in and, you know, Charlie had like a cone or and, a, and bells and like electrodes and was shaved in three spots and had an IV in his ankle. And 
This nurse came in and she's like, oh, Charlie. I was like, I know. And she's like, he looks pretty rough, huh? And I said, yeah. She said, I hope you don't mind, but I want you to know that um, I dance with him at night. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she said, yeah, like I play Etta James in the back and we like, we, we dance together. She asked David what Charlie's favorite foods were. And the three of them started having these little dinner parties. I would just have dinner with him and I would like, sit on the floor and he would go into like writer position (laughs) like laid against me and we would just like be in the room and I would play music on my phone and it was like hours like this. Meanwhile, the realtor who was selling David and Jack's house had started staging it for potential buyers. This woman loved baskets, pillows, and bones. Um, One day we came home and over our bed there was this vitrine of like loose bones with this giant rodent skull. And I was like, how does this sell a house? It was so weird. And I was joking about it, but there was also, I think, this part of me that felt like constantly like, I I don't want to look at all these bones, all these animal bones. After a few weeks of radiation treatments, Charlie was doing a little bit better. And the doctors told David he could come home. But he'd only been there for a couple days when the realtors called one morning and told David and Jack they needed to clear out of the house for the entire day. Uh, There was going to be a taco truck coming to the house this day, so there had to be no car in the driveway. I mean, this real estate company, they really did it up. Jack left to go to work, but David wanted a little more time at home with Charlie. He went into the kitchen and tried to give Charlie a treat. They had this game they used to play where David would pretend to drop a spoonful of peanut butter on the floor. And I dropped the spoon on the ground, and Charlie got right to the spoon, and he just looked at it, and he couldn't locate it. I mean, he was looking at it, but he couldn't get his tongue on it. And he was hitting this kind of frenzy of trying to find it. By now, the taco truck had pulled up outside, the real estate agent was banging on the door, so David grabbed Charlie in his arms and hustled outside to the car to take Charlie to the park. But they didn't make it very far before Charlie had a seizure. It didn't last long, so David kept driving. But then Charlie had a second seizure, and then a third. So instead of the park, David went to pick up Jack, and they rushed Charlie to the animal hospital. And we hand them Charlie in a blanket as he seizes over the counter. And they say, we're going to give him mannitol. And I know what mannitol is at this point, because it's the miracle drug that keeps seizures from happening. And we go home, and I was stressed and I was worried, but I would be lying if I said, oh, I, I had some huge feeling that it was, it felt like I've done this before. I've handed my seizing dog wrapped in a blanket over to a stranger, like, numerous times. And the next uh, morning, we called and was like, how is he? And they said, well, we can't stop the seizure. And I said, no, 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 I misunderstood. I said, no, 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 this is Charlie. We brought Charlie in yesterday, like at noon. And they were like, yeah, we can't stop that seizure. I said, we'll call you right back. And I looked at Jack and we looked at each other and we just knew, we both knew it was was it. When they got to the animal hospital, Charlie was so heavily drugged, he was barely alive. All the hospital staff who'd gotten to know him over the last few months lined up to say goodbye. Finally, this, the woman that danced at a James with him came in, and she's like, do you want to unhook him from the drugs and take him outside and dance with him? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. And we unhooked him, and we took him out in the sun. And 
there was this moment where like, there was enough of the drugs gone that like he, all of a sudden, it was like he was waking up. He was like, dude, what's up? And kind of seeing me, and I don't think I had that moment for more than like 10 seconds before the foam started coming out of his mouth and the lip twitching. A doctor approached them with three syringes. And then he gave him the shots. And then uh, he said, he's gone. And he looked at me and he just patted me with one hand on the syringe and said, this is such a logical choice. Everyone cleared out of the room, and David and Jack found themselves alone with Charlie's body. And it was the last thing I did. I, um, I just sat on the couch, and I arranged Charlie's body like in writer position. I just put him on his side. I remember saying out loud to Jack, I said, oh, this is the last time I'm going to feel this. And he said, no, it won't be. And it wasn't. Our story continues after the break. In the days and weeks after Charlie's death, David and Jack still had to finish packing up the Eden house and move. We were telling ourselves it was going to be freeing. We were going to, like, couch surf, and we had friends that had beautiful apartments that needed their cats watched and their plants watered, and we were going to stay at four different places. One day around this time, they got a call from Jack's sister Claire, the one who'd moved from Pennsylvania with her son Leo. She wanted to know if they wanted to meet her and Leo for tacos. And we met them for tacos, and Claire and... Jack were talking on the other side of the table, and Leo was talking to me, and we were eating tacos, and he reached out, and he put his very tiny hand on mine, and he just said, are you sad? And, like, I felt this thing well up in me, and I just blurted out. I was like, do you want ice cream? So 30 minutes later, we're down the street, and we get him his favorite ice cream. Uh, It's Cookie Monster is the name of the flavor, and it's this bright, it looks just like Cookie Monster, this bright, toxic blue stuff. And, uh... We are um, walking down the street. Claire and Jack are ahead of us, and they are in a crosswalk. And, and, and Leo and I need to go in the crosswalk. And I look down at him, and he's looking at me like, what am I supposed to do? His face is smeared in blue. The, the ice cream is split into two halves, so there's some in the cup. There's some in the cone. It's going down to his elbow, and the light starts flashing. And I'm like, can I grab your collar? And he says, okay. So I grab his collar. And we're crossing the street, and we're about halfway across, and he looks up at me and he says, it's like I'm on a leash. And I, <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah it is. And then right as we're almost to the curb, he says, if you want, I can be Charlie now. And we get up onto the curb, and I fall to my knees in front of a Forever 21, and I hug him so hard. As I'm hugging him, I look and I see Jack and Leo's mom, Claire, and they're looking back at us, and Claire is sort of saying to Jack, like, oh, should we? And I see Jack kind of grab her arm in that way. I know what Jack, Jack's being like, let him have this. Later that same night, back at the Eden house, David was having a rough time. 
He was sad to be leaving this beautiful place where it had seemed like he and Jack and Charlie were going to make their home. But the house also felt haunted by the terrible memories of the end of Charlie's life. Jack was out at his job waiting tables. So David decided to go into the backyard and enjoy the fig tree one last time. He sat on a bench underneath it and smoked some weed. There aren't words to describe how opposite of weak this weed was. Within five minutes, I fell in on myself. It felt like the walls were closing in and I was outdoors. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know how to correct for that. And I ran into the house, and I, I just fell into this, like, panic. In this frenzy, David picked up Charlie's collar, which they had saved as a memento. And it's that thing about wanting to, like, dig deeper into the pain that I have in me. And I just put his collar on my wrist, and I shook it. Like I, you know, recreated the sound it had made on his neck for all those years. And I can't explain what happened to me, but I just felt like... Like I couldn't, like I couldn't go on. Like I... And I went in the bathroom, and I shut the door. And I was sitting on the floor, and I was staring, like, across from me at, like leftover like painkillers and pills and and you know when I was young as like (laughs) an angry closeted goth kid I had thought in a very romantic MTV way about suicide many times I mean it was a thing you know I had built this fantasy that there would be Sinead O'Connor playing and it would be in a bathtub and there'd be white candles and my father would rush in and pull me up from the water and be like you could have been a poet you know and I would show all them that they should have appreciated me in that very like charged teen angst way. But I had never felt that desire to not exist in that way because I was just so tired. Right then, David's phone lit up suddenly. A friend was calling. David didn't pick up. But something about the illumination of the phone screen made David look towards the bathroom door. And there was this sliver of light peeking through underneath it. It was this weird experience because I, 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 it was a shitty world on the other side of the door, right? Like, it was like, it was not pleasant. It was a lot of reminders of stuff that, like, hurt, but it was like, it was there. Once he was able to get the door open, David started thinking about Jack. He had been going to that restaurant night after night, reading specials to people, pouring them cocktails, like, and that was its own kind of not being able to, to deal with things, right? So I just wanted to be like, happy homemaker, and I just started like zhuzhing up the place, and I remember I made tea. I was like, I'm gonna have tea here, and I only poured it halfway so it looked like, like the place that someone with the will to live has been all night. And when Jack came home, I was just there, and it was like, it's like, hey, how are you? I was just like drinking tea with like a fluff pillows, like watching an old reality show, and when we went to bed that night, I just remember thinking like, God, I gotta get out of this. David and Jack finally moved out of the house a few days later. That's when they moved to that little studio apartment across from the Scientology building, and when David took that misguided trip to the group therapy session in Venice. And a few nights later, the next friend's house that they'd arranged to stay in became available. And this house was up on top of a hill, 
and had a staircase leading up to a big front yard and a literal white picket fence. It was like Eden too. Old, wooden walls, like like a cabin inside. It was weird and magical and not updated and had all these old lady country features. And I loved it. And the way that the house is positioned, you know, your front yard is almost like a ramp, like a, like a pier looking out over the city, and the sun sets in that direction. One night, not long after they moved in, David and Jack were watching a documentary on Netflix, and it featured a dog named Charlie. And the couch started, like, vibrating, and I looked over, and Jack is a very, like I said, a large person. So when he heaves uncontrollable sobbing, shit, you're on shakes. And he was crying so hard, and I reached over, and I was like, I said, it's okay, it's okay. And then he said this thing that was like, and I always love the way he said it. It makes me love him that he said this this way. He said, I want to help another dog. They were wary of getting too emotionally attached to a new dog too quickly. So David suggested they could start by fostering one. They reached out to this organization called Mutt Scouts, which specialized in dogs with traumatic backgrounds. And one night, a woman from Mutt Scouts called and said they had a dog that needed to be nursed back to health so that it could be adopted out. It was a three-month-old, four-month-old puppy. It was found in Tijuana being kicked by a group of children as it screamed to try and break into a church that was boarded up. (laughs) And it had no hair on half of its body due to a severe mange condition. The woman said she was actually in their neighborhood and she could bring the dog over that night. So I open the door, and I'm looking at the big green yard with a white picket fence, and she comes through the white picket fence, and she's holding this towel. And from this towel, I just see this, like, brown dog with this entirely black face with just pounds of drool pouring from its mouth. After a few weeks, the dog's condition started to improve. His hair grew back, he stopped drooling, and every once in a while, David and Jack would realize they should probably call Mutt Scouts to check in, But then they kept not making that call. And we were like two or three months in being like, I mean, the dog is better. We've quote unquote fostered. What happens now, you know? And then it just became a joke. Like there was never a moment where we're like, we're keeping him. He was just our dog, Frankie, which is what we named him. As time went on, David noticed something about Frankie. I would take him outside with me some nights he was small for a while, and he would be in my lap, and we would watch the sun go down. But then, as he got older, he started, like, even if I wasn't, he would, he would go a little around 6.37 every night, and he would run into the front yard, and he would sit on the sidewalk, and he would, like, watch the sunset. You know, I don't know if animals have an idea of where they're from. I don't know what their memory is like. I don't know how long they retain you know, some semblance of, I was in a horrible place and now I'm not. But there's this sense that when he goes out into that yard and he watches the sunset, that he's literally like taking some time to just like practice a little bit of gratitude. Of course, that whole time living in that house, I was pretty much taking that time to have gratitude too, right? These days, 
David, Jack, and Frankie live in a small one-bedroom apartment in Little Armenia. David's working on his next book. Jack gives lessons on a keyboard in the living room. And for much of the time that David and I spent on the couch recording all of this, Frankie hung out with us, laying in writing position for hours on end. As David told his story, I got such a clear sense of how much it's been shaped by Brandy and her instinct for self-preservation. Charlie, who helped David find his own voice. And when it comes to Frankie and gratitude, there's one memory in particular that David finds himself returning to. It's actually from the night Charlie died. You know, we got home that night and I walked into this house that was like someone's fucking like anthropology nightmare of like woven blankets and bones. And the lights were off and I was just so numb. And I remember Jack saying, someone's in the house. I said, what? And he said, I'm sorry, someone's been in the house. And I exploded with rage because I realized that I was probably about to see evidence of like the real estate people not having cleaned the house and there was gonna be someone's fucking taco truck refuse or whatever, I don't know, there was pamphlets. And right as I was about to go into a rage, Jack started, (laughs) shit. Jack started like crying in the kitchen and the freezer door was swinging open behind him. I was like, I remember it was such a funny like stage picture. I was like, why are you weeping in the freezer? Someone's been in our house. And he opened the refrigerator door and he was like, look, and our whole kitchen was stocked with food. And on the counter right by it was this huge bouquet of white flowers and Claire and Leo had come over. And it's such a simple thing like food, you know what I mean? But God, it was like, it was fleeting because I was going to, I was angry and I was going to be angry and sad for many weeks. But in that moment, I was like, oh God, this is what it means to have family here. And it also reminded me like, oh no, there's a reason I loved Charlie that's specific to Charlie. There's a reason I love Frankie. It's specific to Frankie. Like, you know, your people are your people and maybe like your dogs are your dogs. Like you just gotta find them. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Vera Carruthers, Saray Shockley, Sally Helm, Odelia Rubin, Jenna Hannum, and Janielle Kastner. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our production assistant is Julia Press. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett. Our theme music is by Luis Guerra, and this episode featured original piano music by David's husband, Jack Perry. Executive producers for Season 3 are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aaliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. Special thanks, as always, to the Kindred Spirits, our supporters on Patreon, who help make our work possible. In addition to ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content, Kindred Spirits have already heard this story. 
they get to listen to everything we make before anyone else. And this week, they're getting a special bonus story from David, featuring a story about yet another dog that we had to cut for time. If you have the means, please consider becoming a member of the Kindred Spirits for just $5 a month at patreon.com slash familyghosts. We are proud creative partners of Spoke Media. Find more great podcasts at spokemedia.io. Season 3 continues next week. We'll talk to you then, and thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Ghost family, if you or someone you care about is considering harming themselves, we want you to know that help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or visit their website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Next time on Family Ghosts. The stories, they kind of just come out of nowhere. From a really early age, they were just like, oh, your grandfather did this, your grandfather did that. This crazy thing happened. He robbed a bank. Kieran's grandfather, Einer, loved to regale his family with stories about his criminal adventures. And even though they've never known whether there was any truth to the stories, to this day, the family loves to tell and retell Einer's greatest hits. And he had nothing to do with clams or us, right? What? Because in the jewelry heist, that's what he uses. Yeah, they hid them in the clams. Uh, uh, yeah. Are we sure he didn't try to rob a bank with Superman costume? I know are we, though? Like, quite are honestly, we no. Are we? Would we know? They're great stories. But as Kieran's gotten older, she started to realize that as much fun as her grandfather seemed to be, he also left a lot of wreckage in his wake. And since no one else in the family has ever really tried, Kieran wants to finally separate the facts from the mythology that Einer created for himself. I think it's important to have like a basic, I don't know, I'm gonna cry. I always cry at these things. But I think that it's important to like actually make an effort to remember things. But when you're dealing with a fabulist like Einer, where do you start? Well, Kieran thought, how about with that unproduced screenplay he wrote about that bank heist he supposedly pulled off? Fade in, establishing shots, Fifth Avenue, morning. Peter finishes the last bite of a toasted English muffin and gulps the remains of a Bloody Mary, raising the empty glass to toast his wife. Getting ready for work. Finishing <laughs> his Bloody Mary. That's coming up next week when season three of Family Ghosts continues. You're listening to WALT. Homemade Radio.